good afternoon. Welcome to our virtual participants and to our in-room participants, whom I will treat to a cup of coffee after yeah. the <laughs> seminar um, in one of our many eateries in Ulster University. Uh, my name is Rory O'Connell, uh, Research Director for Law at Ulster University and one of the investigators on the Global Challenges Research Fund funded project, the Gender Justice and Security Hub, uh, which is led by the LSE, London School of Economics. Uh, very pleased to have some people from the LSE with us here today. And we are going to have a talk with Dr. Claire Wright. A uh, small housekeeping announcement uh, is that there will be a fire alarm at 10 past one in a few minutes. So apologies for that. Uh, there's no need to vacate the building. Uh, our switch off we'll Zoom. Yeah. Um, but it will just interrupt us. Uh, so uh, very pleased to welcome um, Claire. Uh, so Dr. Claire Wright is a research fellow at the School of Law, Queen's University of Belfast, uh, where she is working on a GCRF funded project, analyzing the relevance of colonial legacies for present day peace building processes. After receiving her doctorate in political science from the University of Salamanca, she worked as lecturer at the Universidad Autónoma de Nuevo León and Universidad de Monterrey. And she is co-editor of the prior consultation of indigenous peoples inside the implementation gap published by Ralph Lidge in 2019. Yeah, in 2022, she published the article, part of this project again, Navigating Colonial Debris, Structural Challenges for Colombia's Peace Accord in Peacebuilding, co-authored with our friends and colleagues, Professor Bill Ralston and Professor Nila Nielon. Uh, so we are recording this event, as I already mentioned, so do bear that in mind. Claire is going to speak for about half an hour or so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then we will have time for questions after that. So, Claire, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Roy, for the um, introduction and for the kind invitation. I'm really pleased to be here with you today um, to discuss the politics of knowledge and um, colonial aspects of this um, process. Uh, and also very grateful to Ulster University, wonderful building, lovely room. People on Zoom can't see the lovely view you can see, but believe me, it's very nice. Hopefully next time you can be here in person. Um, just a point of housekeeping, I, I get excited and speak fast, <laughs> so feel free to, like, me to slow down um, if it's too fast. I hope you can hear okay on, on Zoom and see okay and the PowerPoint slides. As Rory said, it's about half an hour presentation and then time for questions. And as this is a seminar, the idea is for you to get involved and share any personal experiences you might have too. This is quite a reflective presentation. Um, it's the first time I present on this topic, but don't be alarmed. I've thought about it a lot, <laughs> um, just not presented on it. So um, all reflections are very welcome, um, particularly at the end, but feel free to shout out um, during, um, if that's helpful. Hi, hey, how are you doing? So, um, sorry. so just to say um, what the contents of today's sort of presentation will be. The first question is, what's the crack? It started off as, what's the problem? But I thought I'd do a nod to TJI's PhD seminar, which is called, what's the crack? So like, what is this all about? Why is this a problem? Why are we talking about this? Uh, you know, is it real? Does it matter? That sort of thing. Um, and then a reflection about the field of study in which I'm involved, transitional justice, and trying to work out what the relationship of knowledge production is within that field and colonialism. Um, then I have a nice sort of conceptual section about the politics of knowledge and how in the COVID-19 context, there's been more studies on this notion of the politics of knowledge. Um, and then I'm gonna present some reflections from the research project um, Rory mentioned, and I'll go into more depth about. 
um, some, some experiences from the virtual field in relation to um, what we call a colonial trap involved in knowledge production. And um, finally, some lessons learned, some specific lessons learned that could be useful for future engagement. Um, suggested readings, and then the final bit is kind of your homework. <laughs> Turning the mirror back on yourselves, hoping that this may inspire like a, a reflexive process or, or join in with an already existing reflexive process in which you may be um, involved. So what's the crack? What's this all about? Why are we here? Why are we talking about this? Well, um, as we know, colonial legacies exist, have existed for a long time. Racism has existed for a long time, but things come and go in public agendas. Now, we saw that during the pandemic, particularly 2020, um, with the Black Lives Matter movement sort of resurfacing in the US and then becoming much more global than it had previously, that the, the issue of racism really took hold of the public agenda in a way it hadn't done globally for a long time. Um, and within that discussion, colonial legacy became increasingly kind of um, salient. Um, many studies on decolonization talk about the fact that sometimes colonial legacy is the elephant in the room. It's not talked about in post-colonial societies or societies or, and states that previously exercised colonial power, but it's kind of there. It's just not named um, explicitly. Um, but in the 2020 con context, as well as racism and violence and that, that can entail becoming more salient, colonialism as a topic, that was the kind of people saying that colonial legacy doesn't exist, sabotaging, <laughs> that was a fire um, practice. Anyway, so um, in this context, so this is a what's the crack, but you know, in this context, 2020 to the present day, these issues have really gained salience. And there's a couple of images there. One is from the US and one's from Colombia. So um, in different parts of the globe, these discussions on the back of the Black Lives Matter protests um, were happening in very different places. Um, and we saw, for example, in Bristol, in England, um, the statue of Edward Colston, slave trader and owner, was um, toppled in that summer of 2020. Same thing happened in other places in the world. In Colombia, in I think it was August 2020, um, a statue of a conquistador, Sebastián de Velazquez, was sort of toppled by indigenous protesters. There's a global effect. It's kind of like a, a world wave of collective action. Um, so bearing in mind this context, and this is a context in which we were talking about colonial legacy, you start to become a little bit self-reflexive. You're like, hang on, we were studying something that we considered to be sort of out there, this colonial legacy, historical legacy, and transitional justice. But suddenly there's a global discussion on these issues, and we are considering our own relationship within this. So there's two questions um, in this project with Bill and Flanula um, that we're really asking, um, which is what space is there for collaboration between the global North and the global South in the pursuit of a decolonial agenda? So you have protests in the US, protests in Colombia. What's the relationship between different sites, particularly bearing in mind hierarchies of power and colonial relationships, ongoing colonial relationships? We began the study talking about historical colonialism Spanish colonialism, particularly um, in Latin America, British colonialism um, in Ireland too. Um, but when you realize that colonialism is thought of in many communities as an ongoing effect, um, that creates a bit of a problem in terms of who you are and what you're doing you know, in this whole puzzle. Um, a second question that we began to ask was, how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected research inequalities between researchers based in Europe and participa participants based in Latin America? Is there a shift? Is there a change? Um, bearing in mind the effects of the pandemic specifically and this global conversation. So um, to be honest, these weren't, these aren't and weren't the central um, questions of our research project. These are sort of questions that actually become equally interesting or sometimes more interesting that happen as you do your research. I'm sure I'm not the only one here that finds that you start off with a question in research and all of a sudden things change because the context takes over, right? You know, you're, you're in your, let's say ivory tower, lovely tower here and then you actually go out and see what people are talking about and it's kind of different I mean that happens right and the contact sometimes catches up with you 
And I think that's what happened um, to us a little bit with this project. So, so um, in terms of the project itself and sort of locating ourselves a bit more specifically in this puzzle, um, I refer to this concept of TJ circuit, transitional justice circuit, um, which Rebecca Rowan talks about in an article um, called We Don't Believe in Transitional Justice on Columbia in 2017. And she talks about this broader um, sort of concentric circles of people working around transitional justice. So a question I hope to answer in this section is, are we part of that? As researchers, are we part of this sort of concentric circle of people working around transitional justice? So um, the project in which we are still engaged, happily engaged, is on colonial legacy and transitional justice, comparing Colombia um, and Ireland. So you'll see I have an image there at the bottom, um, our article that Rory kindly mentioned, um, which is the sort of first round of interviews we carried out in Colombia about Havana Peace Accord and the absence of colonial legacy in the discourse, but its relevance in practice. So we published that article and we published, well, um, we produced a podcast on Indigenous people's engagement with transitional justice um, in Colombia. And we published a blog piece on the Leuven Transitional Justice Institute blog. Um, they have like a special series on historical address and transitional justice. So we did a little bit of a, um, a, a bite of the new piece there um, in terms of what the Truth Commission did regarding colonial legacy, which is considerably more than what happened in the Havana Peace Accord. From the perspective of colonialism and research, one thing that I always note is that these are basically in English, but the blog piece is in Spanish. I insisted on that, that we could publish in parallel English and Spanish. So we do have pieces in the pipeline in Spanish, but obviously um, publishing, bearing in mind that Spanish as a colonial language has its own difficulties in the sort of pecking order of neocolonialism. English is kind of top, you know, and Spanish comes a bit below that, um, particularly working in Latin America. So, so we're aware of that, but those are the outputs of our, our project. Um, so far, but one one thing we saw as say twenty twenty we started was that there were kind of increasing conversations within transitional justice on colonial legacy. Bill Ralston and Felina Leoin are the experts on this. They've been working on it for a long time and saying there's a bit of a an oversight in terms of structural historical legacies um, and transitional justice. But increasingly, since this kind of boom of discussions and mobilization about racism and colonialism, transitional justice studies are sort of taking that into account. Um, so we see special issues, this um, Leuven blog piece, um, it's definitely a, a, an important, a racism to um, important topics. Um, but having said that, there's a bit of a difficult conversation and relationship between transitional justice and colonialism. Many scholars say that in the best case scenario, transitional justice can pay sort of lip service to, for example, historical situations of um, abuse and injustice with indigenous peoples, uh, Canada, Australia, for example. Um, in the best case scenario, we have a colleague on the Herb who's excellent, Mohammed Sasseh, who says it's not radical enough transitional justice to deal with colonial legacy, it needs to do more, it needs to be more dramatic. Um, and then you have authors who say, well, hang on, before that, transitional justice in itself is a neo-colonial enterprise. And you go, oh, back it up. What's, what's the crack there then? You know, what's that all about? And they say, well, essentially, transitional justice in many cases is a model imported from the global north to the global south. It's like our expertise from the north is transported to the south. And sometimes that involves what we call Rome from jobs for the boys, contracts for people, consultants. It's money, money moves us too. So it's almost like an enterprise in itself. Now there's pushback against that. Scholars note that the, the global South um, has made considerable contributions to transitional justice. It's not just thought of in the global North. The global South makes its own contributions too. Um, and Rowan in her article on Columbia finds that people at least in 2017, so this is before the transitional justice institutions are really sort of getting started, 
but there was a degree of scepticism um, about how the process would take place. In our research on Colombia, we found that at, at least back in 2020, people weren't concerned about this being a neo-colonial enterprise. They believed it was very much a domestically homegrown, um, innovative process with just this institutions and, and uh, proposals that were very different. So whether or not transitional justice is seen as a colonial legacy in Colombia is a moot point. What I'm interested in seeing now is the afterlife example of the Truth Commission and what's happening with that, whether there could be some sort of uh, new analysis um, from that perspective. But anyway, there's a sort of murky relationship. Transitional justice is interested in this, but it may be committing errors itself, put it that way, from a colonial, decolonial perspective. Um, and, and this uh, reflection, are we researchers or stakeholders, ties into this notion of the TJ circuit by Rebecca Rowan, because we, starting the project, consider ourselves sort of politically motivated researchers fighting for social justice on Belfast. It's grand. And that's what we're doing, you know. We're not trying to change people's lives or affect them, you know, directly. But how do people see you? You know, how do we see us coming from here to there? And there's this issue of research fatigue. People said that to us in Colombia before we started. People are fed up with people like you just asking questions the whole time, you know? Like, you know, they see you as part of this broader groupie. We're groupies of transitional justice by studying it. So even though we don't consider we are doing transitional justice for the subjects, we're just the groupies, you know? Um, so are we researchers or stakeholders? Perhaps we're unwitting stakeholders, I would say. Um, but that's how we're perceived and that's important. So um, that's the, 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 um, the project itself and, and where this kind of concern comes from. Um, another thing, just a little uh, anecdote, I love juicy anecdotes from the researchers. When we were contacting um, Colombian academics to do interviews in our first round of interviews, one very sort of unpolitely, impolitely got back to us saying, um, no, sorry, I can't do the interview because I don't agree with the power dynamics that generally are created between researchers in the global north and academics in the global south. And I was like, well, fair play to you, you know, that's fair enough. <laughs> I respect that because um, what are we offering in return? What are we doing in return? You know, these are things have to be sort of fleshed out. So I appreciated that. It was, you know, it was a really useful um, reaction. Anyway, so the politics of knowledge in the COVID-19 context, this is a bit of a conceptual shopping list, but it hopefully will improve when I talk about it. Um, we started off looking at the idea of positionality you may see there's a move towards positionality um, in research papers and politics, sociology, law, which is kind of really locating the researcher in context. And this can be a bit sort of, you know, um, autobiographical um, positionality. Uh, Bill talks about the top of, top of a Philip academy. Um, so we need to do something beyond this, as Buzz Lightyear would say, to positionality and beyond. We need to go beyond just a reflection of who we are to work out why that is relevant. Now, I won't speak for Bill and Fanula here, but myself, working on Colombia, I'm English. Yes, I live in Belfast. Um, so I'm very much an outsider, but I have insider credentials because I lived in Mexico for seven years and I know Mexico isn't Colombia, but there are sort of cultural um, and linguistic commonalities and similarities. There are soap operas that travel and jokes that travel um, and some inside knowledge. So for me, I'm in an insider outsider situation in Colombia, more of an outside with insider perspectives. Um, so I think it's important to sort of work out where we all are. Now we're working on Ireland, I feel sometimes more of an outsider than I did in Colombia because of my Mexican credentials, you know? So it's, everyone is able to work out their own positionality, um, but it's important. More important is the politics of this. How does this fit in to sort of uh, international politics? And this is where the politics of knowledge comes or knowledge production comes into play. 
Within international relations, for instance, um, which informs many branches of social sciences, there's a kind of whole group of critical approaches to how politics works in the international sphere, and particularly decolonial and feminist approaches within international relations would say knowledge is political because it's a route towards change, essentially, there's politics involved, it's not abstract, it's not ivory tower, and as soon as we are critical in our approaches, we are taking a political standpoint, and this may have a political impact. Um, and this notion of the politics of knowledge, um, I take from Bryony Jones and Ulrika Luha, um, 2021, I've got a picture of this book at the end in my suggested readings because I love this book. Um, I'm a groupie. I don't sort of get paid to promote it, but I really like it. Um, and this is a wonderful collective volume talking about a collaborative research project between um, researchers in Europe and researchers in different African countries. And what they say is referring to the field of transitional justice um, and peace building specifically, that there is a very close nexus between knowledge and policy. And, and also, lots of us are aware of the impact sort of mantra, impact discourse, that every piece of research you do has to have impact. You have to try, it's the sort of UK government and UK funding agencies are sort of a bit obsessed with that. Um, so as much as we want to have an impact, we're kind of almost pushed in that direction. So in this volume, which has got a range of voices, a range of registers, a range of um, really interesting chapters, they say, well, when we're thinking of transitional justice of field, and we're thinking of the way in which knowledge is produced, this is super important because often that will shape what peace building looks like in the future. So we have to take note of how knowledge is produced and what relationships are underlying this and underpinning this. So it's going from the idea that it's going from a sort of a kind of a very abstract notion of critical political change through sort of deconstructive, sorry, decolonial and feminist perspectives to a really specific area in which we can see this working in, in sort of policy recommendations. Um, within that, are a couple of other um notions that i think are useful um flint and a whole load of authors in 2022 published a paper um on the uk funding and the idea of transfer of resources from global north to global south and they refer to that as epistemic colonialism because the flow of funds is reflected in the flow of agenda from global north to global south so the global south will have to accept the agenda of the global north to accept the funds um epistemic colonialism ethical imperialism by mark israel this would refer to ethics committees um, and how not only are sort of agendas transfer from global north to global south, but ethics and value systems are, are transferred from global north to global south. So, um, for instance, I'm sure in Arsenal as well, Queen's and um, throughout UK institutions, there are ethics committees, uh, lofty ethics committees, um, who are always very aware of context, but essentially are looking to uh, protect the values and morals of the institution in, in situ. My experience in Mexico is there was no such thing as ethics committees. It was a constant ongoing sort of like battle, at least in the north of Mexico. I'm not sure in other parts of where I was, we didn't have ethics committees. It was just good luck to you and you'll realise if you've got it wrong sort of thing. Um, whereas here it's more institutional. Um, so this notion is, you know, how does that translate from global north to global south, different contexts? So to this array of concepts and phrases, we've come up with a few more, just because that's a fun thing to do. Um, the colonial trap. We refer to the colonial trap to refer to this idea of people trying to engage in a decolonial agenda, but actually um, reproducing colonial structures when doing so inadvertently. But so the best laden intentions can go wrong. This I think happens. And this sort of ties into, it's a blog piece. Um, it's called Norman Bisoka too. He talks of the paradox of Western modernity by which Western modernity wants to undo decolonial structures, but ends up just reinforcing them. You know, um, human, humanist thought is limited in terms of its capacity to, to engage with the other. Um, there's another sort of concept that we came up with, which is a Spanish concept. We're trying to be decolonial with our Spanish. 
complicidad. Now, complicidad was used in the interviews, um, some interviews which we carried out, to talk about this notion of being sort of in cahoots in a good way with, with other people. So finding common ground and having sort of similar, um, a similar perspective towards change. So finding sort of closeness that would have a political edge. And now it's interesting, I like this because Spanish gets it wrong and English gets it right. Because in English, complicity from the Latin is always negative. Compl you're complicit to do a crime, but in Spanish, it can be negative or positive. It's sort of double valence, like it would be in Latin. So it's in Spanish. So I thought if you try and do complicity in English, it wouldn't work. Because it'd be like, yeah, what you want to be doing is trying to, you know, do a crime. No, we don't mean that. We mean sort of getting closer to the common goal. Um, and this is finds echoes. So we sort of base this on a notion um, by Andrea Sullivan Clark talking about the context of um, indigenous movement in um, or native movement in the US of decolonial allyship, which is how could you be an ally to a people to which you don't belong from a decolonial perspective? So she's talking about so many, many people who got it wrong as allies. They were trying their hardest to be sort of allies of sort of Native American issues, and they were getting it wrong in the process. So how could you be a decolonial ally properly? And complicidad, we say, is a route towards that finding sort of closeness um, and a, a shared outlook. Um, and the final concept that um, we're sort of introducing formally, um, and which I've read about in the Spanish-speaking world and speaking to people, is el maestro COVID, like COVID as a teacher. The idea that during the pandemic, which is now officially over, apparently, but during the pandemic, we learned things about ourselves. It's a kind of more of a romantic notion of the pandemic, which is terrible, but um, the idea that you learn, thanks to COVID, you learn stuff. Um, and in this sense, there's a whole series of reflections, really interesting methodological reflections um, on how what we learn from the pandemic in terms of relationships between researchers in Global North and Global South, and um, that we would like to sort of feed into with this um, piece. So um, Isis Bare Guyot, who works in Manchester, she has a great piece on um, decolonial feminisms sort of coming to the fore during the pandemic. Um, Charvet and Ordonez, Charvet and Ordonez, um, who talk about that researchers in the Global South became kind of more important during the pandemic because researchers in the Global North couldn't do their jaunts on fieldwork, <laughs> so they were stuck. So they did some of the fieldwork um, in a way that they might have not done before. Um, Alba Boa Cueva, who works in the Hub with other colleagues, talk about sort of new levels of intimacy between um, interviewees and interviewers, thanks to a sort of shared um, global context. But Nwako et al. talk about the difficulties, the problem of people in the global south being sort of um, having to go out, do the work, and being faced with dangers in a way that people in the global north weren't. They were just sat at home waiting for the global scholars in the global south to do all the work for them. So there's a kind of like a whole discussion in the literature. So I think this is kind of a really interesting discussion. It's a bit of a shopping list, as it looks there. Um, but it comes from old discussions about critical approaches to, to field work. Um, and then it, a, a general discussion about politics of knowledge and how this fits in sort of in both a structural and more intimate level to the COVID context. So colonial trap, complicidad, and a maestro COVID would be our sort of contributions in Spanglish to this, sorry. Um, so notes from the virtual field, you know, when you do field work, back in the day, field work, I have lovely pictures of mountains in Peru and lovely buildings in Quito. <laughs> but during the pandemic, we had to do nothing, wait or go online. So that was our notes, lovely pictures from field work. Zoom, um, our conversations were held on Zoom and a lot of communication was done via WhatsApp. Now I have to say, if WhatsApp, if it wasn't for WhatsApp, we wouldn't have a project. Seriously, we would have a project, but it would be very different. Sorry, we would. But it would look very, very different, and it wouldn't have much fieldwork and uh, virtual fieldwork in it. Um, and this, I think, would be an interesting topic for a, 
a paper or a TED talk is, is WhatsApp a tool for decolonial feminist scholarship? <laughs> because I think it is, I actually do. Um, the second, the first round of research was with academics, the ones who accepted our invitation. Um, and the second round of research was with um, indigenous, Afro-descendant or black, depending on how they um, refer to themselves, uh, Romani and Mestiza women in Colombia. And the way to contact WhatsApp, 100% WhatsApp, an email would never get replied to. Um, so WhatsApp is a music community. And this morning, I had one on at 5 a.m. in Colombia and I was talking to her on WhatsApp. Like it's still it's two years after we did the research. We're still in touch on WhatsApp. We still send like flowers on birthdays and things. Like um, I'm, I've am i been really working in Mexico, at least. I knew that most things were resolved by WhatsApp, you know, like appointments and things you get signed up on WhatsApp. Um, but I had no idea how useful a tool this would be. So I think, um, not trying to feed into their marketing, but it just amazed me how important that has been as a tool for communication. And one thing we wouldn't want to do is make too much of sort of this shared context of the pandemic, um, noting that I was sort of quite comfy in my converted garage office <laughs> in Northern Ireland, you know, um, and it wasn't hot and I didn't have too many difficulties. And then women in Colombia who might have been under threat, receiving threats, I wouldn't say that we're in the same position, but there were similarities that I think became more evident because we were both in our, based in our homes or all based in our homes. So for example, every now and then as tiny kids would do, my kids would be unwell. So I would tell one of the women I was interviewing on WhatsApp and then I'd have like 10 prayer WhatsApps from other women, you know, so, oh, your children are unwell. Or you'd have like, I don't know, a delivery person come in, they'd have a delivery person come in, you'd have a child, they would show you a child. You know, if I'd gone there in person to do the research, I did follow up in person with some after, but if I'd gone there in person, we wouldn't have seen those sort of difficulties and those similarities like the domestic came to the fore due to the virtual field. So not trying to make too much of that, particularly in terms of inequalities, there was some sort of commonality there, commonality of experience, like uh, ill children, deliveries, internet cutting out, somehow creates a sense of, sort of complicidad or is part of the sense of complicidad. So that was our um, context. Um, so I, I think there were pros and cons of that. We missed out on a lot of ethnographical, anthropological data, but there was we're in the same situation globally and we're battling with vegetable deliveries, children and internet signals, all of us. Anyway, um, so in terms of some of the experiences or difficulties that we find found, um, the first one I would call it equitable partnerships in times of budget cuts, right? So COVID-19 inevitably yeah. meant that money was all over the place, you know, uh, not in a good way. And um, we this affected our, our research to a certain extent. So um, as many funders and donors do now in the Global North, they have an emphasis on equitable relationships. This is the case of UK RI, for example, um, and this being sort of uh, finding ways to engage with um, organizations, people in the Global South that is fair and equitable. So we said, okay, yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> So um, we were engaged, we are, we were, and we still continue to engage um, with an organization, a women's rights organization in Colombia. Um, and we had everything sorted, brilliant. Um, but they said from us, it's very clear what they wanted. They wanted um, certificates of participation for everybody who was involved and they wanted a report at the end. And we said, yes, of course, perfect. And we also said, well, feeling bad because we had the, these financial resources, have some financial resources too for your costs. And they said, no, we don't need them. And they said, no, 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 do. So they accepted, and then the, the budget cuts came, and we said, oh, you know the resources you didn't ask for that we insisted? <laughs> you can't have them now. That's embarrassing, right? That sort of, uh, it hurts and is difficult, but there's lessons to be learned here. Um, so that there were cuts to the funding, um, and Flint et al, they talk about this epistemic colonialism. So um, some of the commitments had to be renegades on, commitments in the global north to the global south. 
Um, and I say here, as well as you know the, the budget cuts being a problem, we made a mistake there too. I mean, hands on heart, we made a mistake because we had we considered that we had the best intentions in terms of being sort of you know um, fair with the resources, but they never asked for them. Our partners in Colombia, they wanted certificates and they wanted a report. That's what they wanted, and we just wanted to try and I don't know, feeling guilty or whatever you're trying to do. Um, so beyond the, the budget cuts, which is a problem themselves, we fell short of decolonial allyship because we didn't necessarily, we did give them what they wanted, we wanted to do something more. So we fell into the colonial trap there, I think, um, in that specific decision. The good thing is all fine now because they were like, yeah, that's grand. We never wanted them anyway. So let's just crack on. We're like, oh no, this is really terrible. But these things happen, right? This is life <laughs> when you're trying your best. But anyway, um, and there's a, a really good quote here from Isis Barry Gouyot, um, who writes from a decolonial feminist perspective, um, which is the movement to decolonize knowledge should not become one in which researchers from higher income countries play savior to those in lower income contexts. No, received, you know, memo received there. So that's a piece of learning that was important. Um, in other projects, I think that the, the funding cuts are more serious, so I wouldn't undermine it, which is in our specific project, it just highlighted that we made a mistake, you know, error judgment. Meaning, a well-intentioned error, judgment of error. Okay, another issue that um, came to the fore with the uh, pandemic was the issue of ethics and issues of ethics and voice. So we're going back to ethical imperialism here, this notion that ethics committees import models from the global north to the global south. So um, our very highly respected ethics committee suggested that because Colombia is a difficult context um, in terms of violence and social leaders, particularly in recent years, being targeted, we would be well advised to have anonymity as the baseline um, for our interviews, which is kind of um, fair enough. But we, when we got to the end of the second round of interviews, one of the interviewees said the following, this is um, put into English, obviously, I don't like these things being anonymous. The more public it is, the better for us, because we want to let people know what is happening to us. Do count on my participation, but normally I run when there's a, oh, it'll be private, I really hate that. In Spanish, she said, me importa, <laughs> which I would quote because it's a very strong word that I couldn't possibly say in English. Anyway, so um, when you got to the end of your interview, she's like, oh, crikey, did other people think that? Did they just not want to say it? Because we have a lovely consent form and they didn't want to. So um, we realised, again, we'd done it again. We'd fall into the colonial trap. We want to protect them. We weren't. We were being paternalistic. So um, having said that, Pandemic and WhatsApp offered a unique opportunity to address this. Thanks to WhatsApp, we I notified the person who was our contact in the organization. In a meeting we had after that, we talked about it. And, they, and a few more women who hadn't said anything before said, no, I really wanted to be named too. I didn't want it to be anonymous. I just keep going along with it. So we were, via WhatsApp, we're able to go back with all the women and check over this issue of anonymity once again. So again, we can sort of learn from our mistake. There's room to, le to learn from that. Um, and in this sort of context, it's, we think this notion of a feminist ethics of care is really useful. I never thought I was doing that. And then I realized perhaps we are doing that in a way in making sure these relationships are strengthened over time. It's not just, well, you've done the form, you fulfilled it, like ni modo, as I would say, Mexico, like whatever, it's done. Let's just go ahead with anonymity. You want to make sure these people are happy and don't feel used. Otherwise they're going to get more research fatigue thanks to yourself. And that's not very, very decolonial. Um, and I think it's called Amanda Not wrote a piece um, about doing field work in context of conflict. And so the problem is context of any political context changes very quickly, but in conflict, it's even quicker. Um, and so your ethics has to be dynamic in those contexts. Um, obviously we know that people, um, I mean, it's not just me, right? But you can send off a publication and only like two years later it comes out. It's not just me. I hope it's not just me. 
that happens, doesn't it? Yeah, it takes a while for publications to happen and things change in that time. To the best of your knowledge, it's important to keep in contact and keep updated. I've been in touch with the organisation now because there's like a political issue in Colombia that we have to sort of bear in mind in our report. And that's really important. So um, there is that onus. It's very difficult to do in practice. But like WhatsApp helps. That sounds ridiculous. But a communication tool, which is really instant, really quick and really dynamic, um, helps. So uh, in terms of lessons learned, we think that rather than changing relationships, the COVID moment is just a moment of reckoning where everything became more evident. It became much, much more evident. Um, and this is a quote from the book I mentioned in the politics of knowledge, um, one of the chapter authors. The so-called timeliness of a research agenda is a manifestation of its political relevance. So the fact that this the issue of colonialism and transitional justice has become much more sort of um, salient in the public sphere and the academic sphere shows that it's become is reflecting the sort of timeliness. So in terms of um, hope for relationships between scholars in the global north and global south as decolonial allies, the structural level, including foreign aid um, and institutions, is disappointing. It moves slower. It's more complicated. But at least at the interpersonal level, so relationships, there is more room for optimism from this perspective of the feminist ethics of care. So we made a couple of mistakes. We did. Um, they were um, very well-meaning, but they were colonial trap kind of mistakes. But fortunately, thanks to our partners in Colombia, we were able to, to overcome them, I think. And it's all been grand since then. Um, so lesson one. Hmm. equitable relationships go beyond the issue of financial resources, rather they're about really listening to what the partner needs and offering no more and no less. I say 100%, and that even doesn't have to be from Global North to Global South, that's partnerships in general, but it's particularly important, I think, when we think about the colonial relationships involved in um, research. Lesson two, conversations over issues such as consent and anonymity need to be dynamic, ongoing and bottom-up from participants rather than top-down from ethics committees. This is based on our research and our project. I wouldn't say don't override your ethics committee, your PhD shouldn't do that. But I think these conversations are being had now. Um, there's this idea of dynamic consent, um, you know, which is a movable feast. Um, so that's being talked about significantly and it's because these sort of experiences and I, I don't know, I've never had the pleasure of being sort of researched, sorry, interviewed for a research project, obviously not knowledgeable or interesting enough. But I think I would feel a bit like what happened to that information. And I don't know if any of you have been interviewed by the, the press, for example. I was interviewed by the press in Mexico um, several times, and they always misquoted me, you know, and you do feel a little bit violated. Sorry, no, 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 it's fine. It was fun. It was fun. But, you know, it was complicated at times. It was up, it was up north, anyway. It wasn't your neck of the woods. But, um, but anyway, when you feel like what happens to the information I gave out, you know, that, that's important. And again, here the language issue isn't English, Spanish, that's an issue for us. But anyway. That would be for another a topic. So suggested readings. This is a book that basically, you know, when you find the right book at the right time, this was a timely book. When we were studying this, um, Bryony Jones is the, in the International Transformative Justice Network, um, Dara and Co. So this book, Knowledge for Peace, Transitional Justice and the Politics of Knowledge in Theory and Practice. What I love about this book, um, amongst many things, is obviously its treatment of the topic of the politics of knowledge and really getting into the gritty practicals of what would be a decolonizing agenda. So not just sort of abstract, but really practical policy. And also the way it's written, there's a wonderful chapter in which the sort of leads of the, research, the collective research projects in different countries come together to write a chapter. And they talk about issues of co-authorship and meetings in there. I think it's just really, really, really good. Um, that There are some of the other ones that I, I mentioned, um, some of the references that I mentioned there. Um, and turning the mirror back on yourselves. This was a piece of advice from an academic in Colombia who we interviewed, they said, okay, it's all very well studying here, but what about Ireland? What about yourselves in Ireland? How are you going to do that? What are you going to learn from here? 
and take over to Ireland. So this idea of looking at yourself, I think is important. And maybe you've had some of these questions or, or made some of these reflections yourself, but I just wanted to throw some questions out for you. You know, is your research timely in a political sense? It doesn't have to be, maybe may not be. Do you consider yourself an insider, outsider, both or neither? That can change over time and in projects. Now, how has your own experience, for example, privilege and or discrimination shaped your academic inquiry? Um, who are the stakeholders in your research? Are funders a stakeholder, agenda setter? Maybe, maybe not. Are you a stakeholder in your research? What sort of engagement or relationships are you looking to build with your interlocutors? What, if any, impact will the results of your research have on stakeholders and interlocutors? And finally, this I think is a whole topic, it's related to this, but it would deserve a whole sort of um, consideration of its own, is language or communication an issue? And how are you proposing to overcome that? So these are the sort of things that, um, since I did my PhD back like, a million years ago, you'd start to think about these issues, but we were never taught about this, we were never invited to think about these things. But when you're doing your field work and you're establishing relationships, establishing relationships, it's like your day-to-day -day work. Um, and I think with the COVID context, the George Floyd um, killing murder sort of um, context, this has all become much more salient and much more um, important. And there are increasing discussions on this in academia, we can see. So the colonial trap, there it is. <laughs>